quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Rahel Solomon in today for Julia Chatterley. Lots to get to this Wednesday, including Speaker Seeker. High drama on Capitol Hill as Republicans failed to elect the next head of the House of Representatives. All House business essentially grinding to a halt with the high stakes fight continuing today. We are live in Washington, D.C. with the latest. Also, crypto crunched a high profile warning to U.S. banks not to bet on Bitcoin and other volatile crypto assets following the collapse of trading platform FTX. And iPhone grown, the market cap of tech giant Apple falling below $2 trillion as recession and Fed interest rate fears continue to pressure big cap tech. Fears of a recession or even a slow session. Yes, a slow session. Don't worry, we're going to explain in a minute. Pressuring U.S. stocks on the first trading day of 2023 with both the S&P and the Nasdaq falling about half a percent. The picture, meantime, today looking a tad bit brighter. U.S. futures are up across the board. Europe is also higher for a second day as well. The global market outperformer so far this year, though, remains the Hang Seng. That is up more than 3 percent, a third straight higher session on continued hopes for Chinese economic reopenings. It's a busy show, as always, but let's begin with the political drama on Capitol Hill. The House of Representatives set to reconvene in three hours at 12 p.m. Eastern as Republican Congressman Kevin McCarthy continues his bid to be elected speaker. On Tuesday, he failed to win enough votes three times. I think at the end of the day, we'll get everybody at this point, if you fail three times, how do you possibly pull this off? You get to 218. Mr. McCarthy, how do you do it? You come back, you continue what you're doing right now, talking, and you solve the small problems. And former U.S. President Donald Trump has reaffirmed his support for McCarthy. Sunlin Servati is live for us in Washington. Sunlin, look, I mean, the question is, how do you do it, right? I mean, there appear to be a group of hardliners who have made it very clear they do not want Kevin McCarthy. So what does the path forward look like here? That uh, is the very question, uh, Rahel, on the minds of many people on Capitol Hill this morning, most notably, likely, uh, Kevin McCarthy. At this point, there's very little clarity on how exactly he does get to 218. And the math that exists yesterday most likely exists this morning, that he simply does not have the votes to get to the number he needs to go on to be the next speaker. Now, the House, as you mentioned, will uh, come back and reconvene in about three hours from now. And it's still an open question exactly what we'll see. There likely could be two paths. The first path was that they would come in and reconvene, but then quickly adjoin and let this negotiating that's been going on furiously behind the scenes, let that continue to play out rather than it playing out in the public sphere on the House floor, as we saw yesterday, uh, which was pretty messy for many Republicans. Or they could vote again at some point, whether it's at noon today, Eastern time or later in the day. Uh, But the question will be, uh, will the 
math, will the end result for McCarthy be the same or not? And you, of course, mentioned uh, that Trump uh, endorsement that came early this morning. That was um, at the request, Republican sources tell us, of many McCarthy allies who were panicked overnight um, when former President Trump gave more of a tepid endorsement of McCarthy than they would have liked. So clearly, a lot of wheeling, dealing, negotiating going behind the scenes. Um, McCarthy allies trying to make sure that not only Trump puts out his endorsement, but that uh, the question is, will that push the needle in the numbers? That's what Kevin McCarthy needs right now. And it's not clear if he can get there. And Sunlin, this is something that we really haven't seen in about 100 years, right, since 1923. Walk me through the range of possible scenarios. I mean, could it be that the name ultimately at the top of House of Representatives is not Kevin McCarthy and someone different altogether? Yeah, that's a good point. And that's something that's not happened before. Um, but it's something that right now in this very unusual circumstance, people are talking about the potential for someone outside of the House to come in and take that role of being Speaker of the House. That is allowed under House rules, but there are many people saying it doesn't have to come to this. There are other options within the Republican Party. Um, but of course, at the very focus and, and, and important part of this is that Kevin McCarthy has been defiant. And you played that sound to open up your show that last night as he was leaving very late on Capitol Hill, he said, look, I'm going to stick it out. He's digging in. He says he can get to 218. Uh, but of course, as we said many times, that's an open question. So we're talking about plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D, and even other plans that might need to come um, to the House of Representatives to clear up this mess. As of now, everything is at a stalemate on Capitol Hill. Committees cannot start doing their work. There's a question whether in a few weeks, if this goes that long, people on the Hill will get paid. And of course, the Speaker of the House has an important role being the second in line to the presidency mm -hmm. after the vice president. So there's a lot up in the air right now now as all of this needs to be decided. Yeah, that's good context, Sunlin, and uh, all eyes on 12 p.m. Eastern when the political drama, no doubt, will reconvene. Sunlin Sarbati, great. great to have you. Thank you. Thanks. Well, turning to the economy, a new buzzword for the U.S. economy in the new year, thanks to Moody's analytics. Slow session. Moody said Tuesday, a slow session is when economic growth comes to a near standstill, but never quite slips into reverse but what does that mean for investors, CEOs and consumers? CNN's chief business correspondent Christine Romans joins me now. So, Christine, what is behind this more optimistic forecast? Because every day there seems to be a new recession warning. So what's behind this forecast? And I think that's really important, Rahel, to point out that we have been on recession watch for a year now. And this is Mark Zandi at Moody's and his colleagues saying, Look, that might be overstating it. We don't know if there will be a recession. And there are signs that are pointing to a slow session, they coined this new word, which is things kind of grind to a halt, but never kind of fall down uh, into, into negative growth. And here's why. Mark Zandi says shoppers are the firewall in this economy between a recession and an economy that can skirt a downturn. We have seen consumers, shoppers doing uh, uh, amazingly well, resilient even with high inflation and so much global turmoil and uncertainty and gas prices that first went up and, and then went down. So you, what you're hearing from Zandi, and this is what we've been hearing from him for some time, right? He has said, always said there's a pathway uh, to what's also called a uh, you know, a soft landing in the U.S. economy. And there are a lot of challenges for 2023, but don't count out the U.S. economy because the shopper, the consumer, you know, after three years of COVID, wants to spend on experiences, wants to spend on certain kinds of things, and wants to live their life. And that might be the, the driver that keeps you from an actual recession.
Well, here's hoping. Christine, one thing that Mark Zandi also talks about, and he's been sort of sounding the alarm about this for quite some time, is the idea that recessions can sometimes be self-fulfilling prophecies, right? This yeah. idea that perhaps we uh, we become so worried about a recession that we really pull back. Any evidence uh, of that pullback just yet, or is it still just the narrative that we're all discussing, but you're not seeing it in the data yet? What, do, what are you seeing? Well, you know, it's interesting. And there's somebody at the Chamber of Commerce, uh, an economist the cha- at the Chamber of Commerce, who called this, I think, secondhand pessimism, where consumers and people say they feel rotten. Uh, they look at headlines and they look at uncertainties around the world and they say they feel rotten. And then they go out and they spend money and they need to buy a new car because they didn't buy a new car for a year and a half because you couldn't find them or the prices were too high. Those prices are coming down. They're going to say, the, you know, the world is falling apart, but they're going to go buy a new car in 2023. See what I mean? So there is how people say they feel feel and what they do. And that's what we're watching very, very closely. Another thing that um, Zandi and others have pointed out is the job market. You know, it's really kind of hard to fathom a recession as we know it with a job market that is as strong as it is. We're going to get job data later this week, Rahel, as as you well know. But, um, you know, can you have this slow session where you have the unemployment rate continue to rise and you have maybe some overall job losses, but it's still historically a pretty tight job market. That could happen, too. And it might be the overall resiliency of the consumer and the job market, a job market that will soften, but still pretty strong overall, that will prevent an overall recession in 2023. Pretty strong indeed, Christine, as you pointed out. The unemployment rate still at 3.7 percent, which uh, is not far off from a 50-year low. So we will see this Friday when we get that jobs report, as you pointed out. Christine Romans, great to have you. Thank you. Great to see you, Rahel. All right, let's turn to Apple. Apple's market cap falling below $2 trillion for the first time in about two years. This comes only a year after the company hit the $3 trillion mark. Paul LaMonica joining me now. Paul, look, is this just Apple getting swept up in the larger market trends? I mean, think about the Nasdaq last year was off 30 percent. So most tech players had a rough year. Is this just that or are there also starting to be some concerns about consumer demand for Apple? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Rahel, and it is a mix of both. As you point out, you have to really put this into context. Apple, despite this stunning stock price drop in the past year, Apple actually held up a little bit better than the Nasdaq's drop in 2022. And of all the quote-unquote fang stocks, which may be a misnomer now that Facebook is meta, Apple stock price was not nearly down as much as Meta, Amazon, Google owner Alphabet, Netflix. So Apple did hold up better, but you know, try telling an Apple investor who's seen their stock price drop 30% that hey, don't worry about it. You didn't do as badly as Amazon. You know, kind of uh, you know, not exactly a great consolation. And I think there are legitimate worries that iPhone 14 demand may not be as strong as hoped for. You have concerns not just about production delays in China with Foxconn that might be alleviating, but also the COVID outbreak in China could dent demand for these phones in that key market for Apple. So there are a lot of headwinds for the company right now. Mm. And speaking of another company, another tech player also experiencing some headwinds. Uh, Paul, Salesforce making some news this morning saying that it, too, uh, will be cutting jobs or it will be cutting jobs. What can you tell us about this? Yeah, Salesforce uh, cutting about 10 percent of its workforce. CEO Mark Benioff, very candid about the fact that Salesforce probably staffed up overly, uh, you know, aggressively during the good times. And I think that is a problem that many tech companies are facing right now. They are dealing with the fact that when demand was good, they added all this talent 
all of these uh, you know jobs that they put into place, now all of a sudden they realize that with their stock prices plunging and revenue falling, they have to cut costs. And unfortunately, usually when that is something that needs to be done, you know, workers are the first to uh, you know have their jobs cut in order to lower expenses. That's a fascinating that's point, Paul. So yeah. And it's interesting because you could argue that for uh, the last 10 years or so, tech stocks saw their their stock move only in one direction, which was up. And so this is a very uh, different period, I think, for tech players. And you're starting to see that correction, as you pointed out. Paula Monica, we'll leave it here. Thank you. Well, as I mentioned earlier in the show, a powerful new warning about cryptocurrency from U.S. financial regulators. They're telling banks that crypto assets come with a number of risks, including fraud, volatility, that's to say the least, misrepresentation and faulty risk management. Their warning came the same day that former FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried appeared before a judge in New York. CNN's Kara Scannell joins me now. Sarah, look, these are not necessarily new risks, but what are these uh, regulators saying? Right. I mean, I think this is not a new risk, but this is the first joint statement from these three U.S. banking regulators, the Federal Reserve, the FDIC and the Office of the Controller of the Currency. And they're really warning the banking sector here to pay attention to the risks of crypto and make sure that they're insulated from those risks. And among those risks are the potential for fraud, which is uh, the allegation here at FTX. Also, the questions of volatility in the market, which was which we have seen repeatedly over the years, kind of going up and down, uh, and also the uncertainty of ownership because of how some of these wallets are structured. Uh, the main point that the Fed and the other two regulators are making is about, you know, they, they don't want the risks associated with crypto to migrate into the banking sector. We've seen that sort of thing before, risk in credit default swaps, risk in subprime mortgages, uh, and that impacting the banking sector. They're, they're wanting to draw a line here and shine a light on this to banks to say, you got to pay attention to this. Now, they're also saying that, you know, they're not prohibiting any banks from engaging these activities or discouraging them, but they are reviewing proposals by banks that want to get involved in some of these crypto areas and that they, the regulators say that they're learning, you know, every day from this. But, you know, this message does come two months after FTX's collapse. And that collapse was, a, you know, a result of, according to authorities, fraud and also was triggered in part by the volatility in the market and, you know, a liquidity crisis on the exchange, Rahel. Mm. And Kara, to that point, we know that SBF's former uh, FTX's former CEO, SBF, uh, has pleaded not guilty to the criminal charges uh, against him. What can you tell us now about what happens? We know this now goes to a trial. What do we know about the trial and what's next? Yeah. So in this court hearing yesterday was the arraignment. SBX had pleaded not guilty to these charges. The judge set the trial date in this case for October 2nd and also laid out a schedule of you know how things will play out from here. The prosecutors are going to begin turning over some of the evidence. They said they would turn over the results of some uh, search warrants this week. And then over the next coming weeks, they would turn over all the other information that they've obtained so far in this case, including information from FTX itself, from regulators and from some customers and investors. So FTX's legal team will begin to get a sense of the breadth of the evidence that the government has collected uh, and intend to use against him. Uh, and then from there, you know, this will play out in court in a, in a structured way where there'll be motions and they'll move forward to prepare for the trial. Uh, you know, but also tomorrow is the deadline for uh, FTX, uh, excuse me, for um, Bankman-Fried to have two other people sign those bonds uh, that are a part of the component of his bail, this $250 million bail package. Uh, that's due tomorrow. Uh, the judge has agreed for now to redact the names of those individuals at the request of Bankman-Fried's attorneys who said that they were concerned about their privacy and their safety after Bankman-Fried's appearance have received some threats, according to his attorneys.
Rahel. Yeah, that, that was an interesting development for sure. Kara Scannell, great to have you. Thank you. Let's turn to Ukraine now. Ukraine claiming another devastating hit on Russian forces as Moscow appears to blame its own soldiers for a deadly strike in the occupied eastern region. Kiev says around 500 enemy troops were either killed or wounded on New Year's Eve near Chulakivka. That's a village in the southern Kherson area. Further north, meantime, the Kremlin is now increasing the death toll in the Makivka attack to 89 and says that the use of cell phones among Russian soldiers is what allowed Ukraine to track and target them. Scott McLean joins me now from Kiev. Scott, good to have you. So, I mean, what can you tell us about the reaction to this? Because essentially what you have here is the Kremlin blaming its own soldiers for these attacks. And there appears to be some rare dissent, some rare uh, discontent about these comments. What can you tell us? Yeah, that's that's exactly right, Rahel. It's a pretty remarkable statement to say that, look, the Russian military has a policy, has rules against using cell phones too close to enemy lines. And that is precisely what happened in this case. I mean, we don't know for certain uh, how long these cell phones had been on, if in fact this is the case. But you can just imagine these Russian troops perhaps calling their loved ones to wish them a happy new year since this strike came literally a minute or two after midnight. Um, the Russians say that whoever, whichever military officers ultimately allowed this to happen will be held to uh, account. The head of the Donetsk People's Republic also says that some Russian soldiers actually managed to escape the blast, the initial blast, uh, get out of the vocational school that they were inside of, and then go back in to help some of their fallen comrades actually get out. And they were killed in the process. But you mentioned some of the dissent that we are hearing as well. First off, the Russians updated the death toll from 63 to 89. One prominent Russian military blogger that is very widely followed and very well respected even by the Kremlin said that his expectation is that that death toll will continue to climb as they sift through the rubble and as they find and identify more bodies. He also questioned this assessment from the military that this was simply the use of cell phones, saying that it wasn't convincing and that it was a blatant attempt to smear blame, saying that, look, this also could have been Ukrainian drones that were keeping tabs on the area. It also could have been an informant on the ground. And uh, the a spokesperson for the Ukrainian uh, military seemed to perhaps agree with that assessment, saying that, look, of course, you shouldn't be using your phones near the front line. But uh, he said that wasn't the reason for all of this happening. He says this was the inability of Russia to covertly deploy its brand new conscripts to the front lines. And that's ultimately what led to these consequences. And one other thing to mention, Rahel, and that is the use of uh, the weapon that the Russians say was used, this HIMARS, U.S.-supplied HIMARS mobile artillery system that has allowed the Ukrainians to fire deeper behind enemy lines. One pro-Russian military blogger says that it is now undeniable that there is a growing body of evidence that the Ukrainians are not just using this system to target uh, infrastructure and supply lines. They are also now using it more and more often to target barracks and Russian personnel on the ground, Rahel. All right. Scott McLean in Kiev there for us. Thank you. And straight ahead. The geopolitical will be critical for the Wall Street bulls in 2023, from Ukraine to China to the upcoming U.S. presidential race. Lots will be happening in the international space. Global hotspots all investors need to keep an eye on coming up next.
Welcome back to First Move, taking another look at U.S. markets. The Wall Street bulls hoping for a bit of a do-over after a disappointing start to 2023. U.S. futures are up across the board, with the Dow futures up about three-tenths of one percent, Nasdaq up seven-tenths of a percent, and the S&P up about half a percent. Now, among the weakest sectors yesterday in the previous sector, that was session tech and energy. And taking a look now at oil stocks, well, they're on track for another lower open today amid another sell-off in crude. Both Brent and U.S. crude falling more than 4% Tuesday. WTI is now off about 2.5% and just about the same for the international benchmark Brent crude there. And energy markets sure to be affected, not only by prospects for a global recession, but also by events in Ukraine, where the war will soon be coming up to a year old. The global challenges, of course, don't end there. U.S.-China relations and China's ongoing efforts to reboot economic activity, that's sure to influence markets, as well as trends such as the move away from hyper-globalization and the move toward a greener economy. Tina Fordham is closely watching all of these critical investment challenges. She is a geopolitical strategist and the founder of Fordham Global Foresight. Tina, great to have you today. Thank you. Thank you. So you talk of accepting the world as it is rather than how we would like it to be. I mean, what are, do you think, the biggest blind spots where perhaps we are collectively being a bit too optimistic? Well, I mean, first of all, since Putin's invasion or second invasion of Ukraine February 24th of last year, I think it's forced a rethink on many of the um, ideas that investors assumed um, were held by world leaders. First of all, that everybody's interested in economic growth and stability. Turns out power is still the main driver, and Putin is not the only world leader who's pursuing an agenda that's based on projecting geopolitical power. Hmm, I think that's interesting. Might you want to elaborate on a few other leaders that you think right now are prioritizing power over economic growth? Well, I think for China, the presumption is that economic power and geopolitical power are intertwined. This is certainly how the the U.S. has approached things. But what I mean to say is that investors assume the primacy of the economy over over power dynamics, and and that's not necessarily the case. So um, former ambassador to Russia was was saying uh, earlier that when he spoke to the heads of U.S. multinationals working in Russia, uh, this is certainly true of investors that I was talking to at the time, they said Putin will never invade. It would be bad for the economy. Uh, Putin was warned that Russia would be isolated. All of those things have happened, and yet none of it uh, deterred Putin from taking that step. President Xi Jinping in China has been very clear uh, about his vision of uh, reunifying with Taiwan. We should really take him at face value there, that it's a a question of when uh, and not if. And yet, still for business people and uh, and market participants, the assumption is that, you know, the leaders won't take risks if it undermines their economy. They're hoping to do both. And so for business leaders and investors, the theme, I think, for 2023 is a term you you say firewalking. Explain to me what exactly firewalking is, because when I hear that, I think of, I don't know, spiritual gurus walking over coal. So what exactly do you mean and what are the practical applications of that? Well, that's exactly what I mean. Um, It's you know, it it is very much drawing upon that idea of uh, uh, people who are able to walk over hot coals without what happening, without without getting burned. And, and what I'm really trying to communicate is that we can't 
swerve geopolitical risk uh, in the decade ahead, to be frank, uh, we're going to have to learn to walk through the fire. It's actually a quote from the American poet Charles Bukowski, who said, what matters most is how well we do it. And I think this is what investors need to do. Instead of being in denial, projecting our own values, um, we need to get used to the fact that we've got a number of hot spots, and also we've underinvested, quite frankly, uh, in you know whether it's uh, diplomacy or our own understanding about the w- the way the world works. Hmm. Looking ahead to 2024, there are several significant elections. We have, of course, our elections here in the U.S., but we also have India, Russia, Ukraine, and the U.K. I'm curious, though, how significant do you think the division that we're currently watching in Washington will ultimately be? I mean, we are used to certainly seeing a certain level of political gridlock between the two parties, but seeing this level of division within one party does seem to be quite rare. How significant do you think that is, if at all? Well, it's hugely significant. I mean, it is a blessing, really, that given all the turmoil that we're talking about, as well as the possibility of a recession and other um, economic policy issues, that in 2023, we don't have very many systemically significant elections. Every time a U.S. election comes around, uh, people like me say, well, this is the most important U.S. election of our lifetimes. Well, guess what? We're going to be saying that again, because so much is at stake. I can tell you from where I am in London, talking to mainly non-U.S. investors, though, that the world breathed a massive sigh of relief um, after U.S. midterms, not especially because Democrats did better than expected, but because the election deniers and more extreme candidates didn't do well. So the idea that U.S. institutions' respect for the Constitution remains is of enormous importance, but also given how high the stakes are, who's in the White House really matters. Most people are genuinely mystified by U.S. politics at the moment. Um, And so who ends up winning the Republican primary, whether Biden announces he's going to run again, these will be hugely important questions, uh, as well as uh, Americans' engagement in, in the world. Um, mm. U.S. leadership is important, uh, given the extent of the geopolitical turmoil that we have. Yeah. As you point out, lots of questions uh, ahead and also lots of questions even today, such as who will lead the House of Representatives here in the U.S.? Tina Fordham, great to have you. Thank you. She is the head of Fordham Global Foresight. And coming up on First Move, growing concerns over COVID in China, new reactions to travel restrictions on passengers arriving from China. Coming up next. Welcome back. The head of the International Air Transport Association criticizing new border restrictions on travelers from China, calling the moves extremely disappointing. More than a dozen countries, including the U.S., U.K., Japan and South Korea, imposed entry restrictions after China scrapped its zero COVID policy. Ivan Watson joins us from Hong Kong. Ivan, great to have you. So what can you tell us about the reaction here? Because, I mean, we're even hearing from certain public health agencies in Europe who are saying that a lot of the variants that are spreading in China right now, much of the West and the rest of the world have already been exposed to. And so I think there's a bit of a question about whether this is even necessary. That's right. I mean, there's a debate here. Do you, uh, China has decided to end nearly three years of self-imposed isolation just as COVID is 
kind of raging through the world's most populous country. So governments have a choice. Do they view this as a potential tourism windfall as Chinese travelers get back in the air, or do they view this as a potential public health threat? Uh, and the European Union uh, held a meeting on Tuesday and said it's considering measures such as uh, demanding pre-departure COVID tests from uh, travelers from China and taste testing wastewater uh, on, on planes potentially and additional measures. They haven't quite decided yet, but we showed the map before. There is a, a growing number of countries that are imposing different levels, uh, ranging from, again, uh, pre-departure tests, such as what the U.S. is requiring, to Morocco, which is completely closing its borders to any travelers from China. The Chinese government doesn't like this at all. It finds this insulting, but it's finding supporters. For instance, the aviation industry, the head of the International Air Traffic Transport Association, Willie Walsh, who came out blasting uh, these restrictions, calling them extremely disappointing to see this knee-jerk reinstatement of measures that have proven ineffective. We have the tools to manage COVID-19 without resorting to ineffective measures that cut off international connectivity, damage economies and destroy jobs. And he goes on to say governments must base their decisions on science facts rather than science politics. Uh, another government that has opted against restricting Chinese travel is New Zealand. Take a listen to what the New Zealand health minister said. As part of the public health risk assessment, officials also worked through scenarios of potential case numbers traveling from China using our projected arrivals over the next few weeks. And uh, this analysis confirmed that visitors won't contribute significant, significantly to our COVID case numbers, meaning entry restrictions aren't required or justified. One of the concerns is about criticism of a lack of transparency from Chinese health authorities about the scale of uh, the outbreak within mainland China. And that's been echoed uh, somewhat diplomatically by the World Health Organization, which invited Chinese officials to a meeting on Tuesday where it was asking for more genome sequencing. There, We are expecting a press conference as I speak from the WHO, hoping to reveal whether or not Chinese officials delivered on those requests. Rahel? A lot more to come here, Ivan Watson. Thank you. And stay with First Move. More after this. Well, the American actor Jeremy Renner is said to be making positive progress in the hospital as he recovers from a snow plowing accident. The 51-year-old shared this picture on social media saying, I'm too messed up now to type, but I send love to you all. He remains in intensive care. Chloe Malas is following his progress. So, Chloe, we're learning much more about how this all happened. I mean, it sounds like he's lucky to be alive. I mean, what can you tell us about how this happened? Well, so finally, we got those details, Rahel, after days of speculation from fans wondering how this could have happened. So there was a press conference that took place last night by the Washoe County Sheriff's Department in Nevada, and they detailed what happened and that this snowcat, that's a snowplow that Jeremy owns, that's over 14,000 pounds, rolled over on him in what looks to be just a freak accident. Take a listen. After successfully towing his personal vehicle from its stuck location, Mr. Renner got out of his piston bully to speak to his family member. At this point, it was observed that the piston bully started to roll. In an effort to stop the rolling piston bully, Mr. Renner attempts to get back into the driver's 
seat of the piston bully. Based on our investigation, it's at this point that Mr. Renner is run over by the piston bully. All right. So here is what we know after listening to the sheriff, Rahel, is that the power had gone out at Jeremy Renner's home. There had been record snowfall. There was about three feet of snow in his immediate area. He has this long driveway and a family member of his, as you just heard, was stuck in Jeremy's car, one of his cars, in the snow. So Jeremy gets in the snowcat, this massive snowplow, like I said, is over 14,000 pounds, tows the car successfully, gets off the snowplow to talk to his family member. And as this is happening, the snowplow begins to roll. Jeremy attempted to get back into the snowplow to stop it, but somehow he fell off, and then that's when he was crushed. Luckily, though, As you saw on Instagram, he looks like he's going to make a full recovery. I spoke to a representative for him who told me yesterday that, yes, he's in the ICU. He's still in critical but stable condition. Um, And he experienced that blunt force chest trauma and injuries to his arms and legs. But that, you know, he's going to be okay. He's recovering. He's awake. He's talking. And, uh, you know, they're still hoping for prayers and thankful for all the well wishes. But let's be honest, he's lucky to be alive. Absolutely. And incredible to hear all of those details, Chloe, as you pointed out there. Can you tell us a bit more about what he's saying to his fans? We know I think he posted on IG. It was uh, really thanking his fans. What else is he saying? Well, so, I mean, it was very unexpected right as this press conference is happening. He posts this selfie from his hospital bed and you can see the bruising and the swelling and his eyes are bloodshot. But he says, thank you for the kind words. I'm too messed up to type right now. Um, But he just wanted to show people and thank them. I think in about just about 30 minutes, Rahel, there were over a million likes flooded with comments and people are just so happy. And like I said, I spoke to his publicist, Samantha Mast last night, right after he posted this picture on Instagram, and she said that he's alert, he's talking, he's in good spirits, he's surrounded by his family, he's getting great care, and that he is just thankful. So, Mm. I mean, look, it could have been much worse. And I was talking to Don Lemon this morning on CNN this morning, and he said, look, maybe all of that snowfall actually could have saved his life even because maybe it sort of softened the impact. But hopefully Mm. we'll learn more. And I also just want to point out that the sheriff's department, they are launching an investigation into potential mechanical issues with that snowcat. But they said that um, he was not under any sort of influence of anything and that there was no foul play involved. Well, good to know and certainly good to see that he is recovering and posting from the hospital room. Chloe (laughs) Malas, great to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Incredible story. Meanwhile, teammates of American football star Damar Hamlin describing the horrific accident which has left the Buffalo Bills player fighting for his life. After making a tackle, the 24-year-old suffered a cardiac arrest on the field during Monday night's game against the Cincinnati Bengals. In that moment, like, you kind of just realize, like, like, you really can't take anything for granted. And looking at a teammate, a brother, um, like, on the ground, it's it's just it's just a drastic state to see a brother and laying down and everyone else just kind of just you know just just come on come on come on uh get up get up and 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 all of those drastic emotions but like that are pouring out just just seeing him not one second of our life is promised and with this play it is showing that that one play later it is it is taken the 
Damar, a 24-year-old man, to into his knee, and he's fighting. And uh, for everybody that thinks that, oh, it's it's about a fantasy point or, you know, my my uh, and my draft, whatever. Like, like, it's just like, this is real life. This is real life. The event really shocking people around the world. CNN's Adrian Broaddus is in Cincinnati with the latest. Latest, Adrian, great to have you. I mean, reaction continues to pour in. What can you tell us about his status? Are we hearing from the hospital at all? I mean, how's he doing? We have not heard from doctors here at the hospital, but I did speak with DeMar's uncle Dorian on camera last night and then at length off camera. And his uncle told me the next step is that doctors want DeMar to start breathing on his own. As you know, he's still in the intensive care unit here, listed in critical condition. He's on a ventilator and he is sedated. This after suffering a cardiac arrest. The news was surprising as fans watched, but his family was also stunned, and they've been with him at his bedside here in the hospital. I want to share with you what his uncle told me. Listen in. Well, his heart had went out, so um, they had to resuscitate him twice. They resuscitated him on the field before they brought him to the hospital, and then they resuscitated him a second time when he got to the hospital. So um, I just want to show my gratitude for the medical uh, staff that were on hand because if not for them, my nephew probably wouldn't even be here. And here we are, Damar still fighting to live. On the field, he wears number three. And there is what I'd like to call the get well soon corner outside of the hospital. There are balloons with messages of hope. One balloon says get well soon, but there's also a single golden balloon and it is the number three, the number he wore on the field, but he is number one to his family. And for those of you who believe in the power of prayer, so does this family. And if you believe in positivity and good vibes, this family is asking for all of that and more as they wait for news from the doctors. And, and so many people waiting, Adrian. And speaking of those good vibes, talk to me a bit, if you might, uh, about one of his fundraising efforts, GoFundMe. I mean, really exceeding its goal as uh, people really pour in to try to support him in any way they can. At last check, it was topping $6 million. This is just a sign of that outpouring of support and love. This community here in Cincinnati and beyond, really across the nation, have wrapped their arms around this family. And his uncle told me they can feel that support. Uh, the charity, I do want to talk a little about that. It speaks to who DeMar is. He has a heart for community. And we're talking a lot about his heart. We know that his heart stopped twice, but his heart was in giving back and helping people, especially in his hometown of Pittsburgh. His goal was to make it to the NFL. He made it, but he was the sixth round draft pick. And the day he found out he was going to be playing for the Bills, he said, we still have a lot of work to do, and I'm paraphrasing. And part of the work that he enjoys doing is giving back and helping people, filling the gaps for young folks who may need a mentor. Outside of the football field, he aspired to inspire others. Back to you. That's a great point, Adrian, that these, these men are not just football players, they're not just athletes, but they are real people uh, who clearly give back uh, in any way they can. Adrian Broad, it's great to have you. Great reporting. Thank you. Well, we have more First Move after this. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move. We are about 20 minutes into the session on this Wednesday, the second day of the trading year. You can see the Dow, NASDAQ, and the S&P all solidly higher. Dow's up about three-tenths of one percent, the S&P half a percent, and the NASDAQ about four-tenths of one percent there. Investors hoping that the second time is the charm in 2023. U.S. stocks, as I said, currently up across the board after a more soft start to the new year yesterday. The market challenges will be coming fast and furious over the next few days. We have a key look at U.S. job openings, which will be released ahead of Friday's all-important jobs report. The Fed releases the minutes of its latest policy meeting later today as well. And this will give investors new insight into just how hawkish policymakers are on the future of rate hikes. Long-suffering Tesla bulls seeing a bit of green on the screen after shares of the EV maker tumbled more than 12 percent Tuesday on demand fears. You can see Tesla shares are now up closer to about 2.6 percent. The stock, though, extremely volatile in early trading, up about 2.65 percent at this point. Tesla, meantime, was the worst performing stock on the S&P 500 in the previous session. Its shares have fallen some 70 percent this past year. Meantime, 2022 saw the return of the blockbuster. Leading the pack was the highly anticipated avatar, The Way of Water. IMAX announced that the film, directed by James Cameron, is now the fourth highest grossing IMAX release of all time, with a global box office of $160 million. The success of the sci-fi sequel really helping lift the company to nearly $850 million in the global box office for 2022. That is up 33% over 2021. And with an impressive list of movies set to be released from the Super Mario Brothers movie to another installment in the Mission Impossible franchise and four, four Marvel movies. IMAX is hoping that moviegoers will dive headfirst into another impressive year and bring box office receipts back to pre-pandemic levels. Joining me now is Rich Galvan. He is the CEO of IMAX. Rich, great to have you. Great to be here, Ahel. How are you this morning? I'm doing great. Doing great. So excited to talk to you. Avatar 2, it's now been out for about three weeks. I know you say that, you know, in terms of Avatar, it's a marathon, not a sprint. How, what can you tell us about how the movie is performing so far? I mean, you know, as you said, it's uh, t- a top four movie of all time, only three weeks into the run, a little bit less. Um, the rest of the world outside North America passed $100 million dollars. Um, over the weekend, it's only the third time that's ever happened in IMAX's 50-year-plus history. Um, you know, the word of mouth is extremely good. This third weekend in, in North America was up from the second weekend in North America. Um, the first one, and I'm not predicting that for Avatar 2, but had actually better months for IMAX in um, January and February than it had in December. Um, I, I, I don't think that phenomenon happened. But I think people are going to be surprised by the durability of this thing and how long it's going to play for. Mm. Is it safe to say that the international markets perhaps are performing a bit better than here in the U.S.? I mean, what can you tell us about how strong this, at least Avatar, is doing the international markets? Well, I think both markets are doing extremely well. Um, But I think um, your observation is correct. Um, Outside the U.S., it's just, you know, blowing away. Um, many other movies. We've so far, after less than three weeks, set records in 18 countries, including Germany, France, uh, the Netherlands, um, uh, South Korea, a lot of other places, uh, India for the best uh, IMAX release of all time. And um, that I am somewhat um, surprised and encouraged by that. I think part of the reason is 
13 years ago when the first Avatar came out, um, it was an unknown piece of IP. And I think it was so good and people were so much looking forward to the sequel. And also the fact that IMAX and Avatar um, became sort of synonymous. It, it's an event movie. It's something you feel like you really need to see in IMAX. And I think as a result of that, that's one reason the international is so strong. Do you think we are post-pandemic in the movie industry or have we not reached 2019 levels yet? Well, I mean, to be clear, IMAX, um, if you take away China, um, we were very close to 2019 in 2022. So we're picking up market share globally. And I think a premium experience and a way to see movies differently, they're on your couch. I think people are kind of tired of that. For us, I think, you know, we're more out of it than than traditional exhibition. Um, I think in terms of the industry as a whole, I think we're, there's really been a, a dramatic change in the last couple of months. And, you know, we feel it in terms of inquiries for new IMAX theaters, in terms of install activity at the end of the year. Um, I should turn back to China, um, where it, it's about one third of our global revenue traditionally. And I think the fact that they've reopened and they got through um, kind of a psychological change, the government had really instilled in them, you know, COVID is something you could die from, you're going to go to the hospital. But now that there's been so many cases and they're developing so much more immunity, you see you know, that starting to turn around. I mean, for us, for IMAX, um, our performance in Avatar 2 was the fourth best we've ever had in China. And that's kind of remarkable when you consider where they are in the COVID curve. So my answer would be if 10 is fully out of it in the world, I think most of the world is kind of around, you know, a seven, eight. China's probably a six and headed towards a seven or an eight. And Rich, we don't have much time left, but I do want to ask, heading into 2023, what is the biggest risk factor for IMAX? Is it a global recession? Is it the fear of streaming? I mean, what's the biggest concern for you in about 30 seconds or less, please. All right, 30 seconds or less. Streaming has proven it doesn't work without a theatrical window. So not really worried about that. Movies have proven to be one of the best recession-proof businesses in the world and inflation-proof as well. So if you ask me what worries me, I'd say it's it, it's probably the continued reopening and just not having any setbacks in the area of COVID. Mm. Volatile indeed. Rich Gelfand, it's been great having you, CEO of IMAX. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that is it for the show. I'm Rahel Solomon. Connect the World is coming up next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.